Hey everyone, welcome to Creepy Inquiries. A podcast dedicated to all things creepy, spoopy, and true crimey. With your hosts, Miss Kevin and Edie, your friendly neighborhood queers. in that lower register hunties yes we are today because we're 93 i don't know if Mm -hmm. there's a correlation with that and having us do a lower register but it's happening welcome everybody i think he punched a flat earther in the face astronaut buzz aldrin is 93 he sure did (laughs) he He sure did that's right it's like maybe better than landing on the moon oh you know what it's at least lateral it's it at least uh, served our country more, TBH. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. She ran away from a lot of birds and put up with a lot of shit from Alfred Hitchcock. That's right. Tippy Hedren, mm-hmm. 93. Tippy Hedren. I hate to admit that I love that movie. Tippy was in, what is Tippy Hedren Lion movie? Roar? Yes. Roar, 1981. Future, Future subject, subject of the pod. pod. 1981. <laughs> wait, I don't know we will anything say that story is fucking wild. Miss, I'm going to tell wait. you. Uh huh. All I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Is real live tigers. Very well, um, real. On the set of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so not just excited. anyone's homes, but Tippi Hedren, who is the mother of Melanie Griffith. Oh, I did not know she was her mother. Yes. So Dakota Johnson is like a Nepo grandbaby. For sure. Well right. Okay. On both sides, I think. The Google right. in a nutshell about the movie says frightening and crazy, which is true. Roar. It is true. <laughs> of the pod. Yeah, miss. We okay. cannot wait. I can't wait. So uh, I uh, Edie, you and I are going to have to duke it out to see who's going to oh, do it. I know. It's some, we've Whoever gets to first. beat each other to roar. Whoever yeah, gets whoever. to it first. Uh, let's see. Oh. He's always looked somewhere between 50 and 80, but is now 92. Gene Hackman is 92. Oh, okay. Yeah, that tracks. Cool. He's always looked the same age my entire life. So yep. good yeah. for him. <laughs> and founder of Motown Records, known for working with the Supremes, Stevie Wonder, the Jackson 5, the Four Tops, and Marvin Gaye. Barry Gordy Jr. is nice. Icon. I got to say, Edie, you you dragged all of these people right before we pressed record on this saying it's going to be slim pickings for this week for people that are 93. But I got to say last week's was was bleak. Last week was last week was a little bleak. This one's full of people that are right. This one's all right. You know, I have to like save one for the end. You sure do. So I've got one. Got one in the chamber for the end. God, Don't yes. Don't give away the secrets. We love it. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it because as this is episode 93, we're getting up there in age, y'all. We are. We're going to be 100 soon. Can you even we're imagine? We're coming up on episode 100. Yeah, 100 soon. Come November. Come November. Now, come Ooh. on now, November. November? I hardly know her. <laughs> oh, God. Listener. Yes. Kevin had the face of a little stinker for a full second and a half before he was like, am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? And then little boy did it. Yep. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> I saw Nick Cave last night. I know, Edie. Yeah, I was did. so ready for you to talk to us about it. Give it I'm a go. Everything. It was transcendent. I was in the same room with him. It was very close. Your Wished seats. Happy birthday. My seats were very close because Mr. Fake Name is a Ticketmaster wizard. Yeah. And back in March, wow. I think, he secured these tickets and it was phenomenal. 
It was I Nick it. at the piano and a bassist sharing the stage with him. Who? Oh, no big deal. Just Colin Greenwood from a little band called Radiohead. Ever heard what? of them? So it's wow. Nick and the bassist from Radiohead on stage together doing an absolutely impeccable set list. And like very yeah. few people had their phones out, which was really good. I think it was like we were all just sharing in the experience together. It was mm. phenomenal. We had dinner Great. beforehand at a place that turned out to be a restaurant slash nightclub, which was like, oh, we were in the restaurant portion only. Uh, <laughs> but there were definitely like nightclub folks when I had to go upstairs to the nightclub to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Um, That's so weird. It was very weird. To have the nightclub going during dinner time. At 6 p.m. Wow. Who's who's clubbing? I don't know. They were playing a bunch of just like late 90s, early 2000s, like hip hop and R&B. And it was perfection. We had some Usher. We had some Ashanti. We had Aaliyah. We had Tony Braxton. Speaking of getting in the low register. The eighth grade dance. My eighth grade dance. Yes, taking us back to the middle school mixer, Mm. right Right. to the Willennium. The the concert was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Will you ever recover? I don't think I will ever recover. Edie, you are glowing right now. You are. I'm so, I'm complete. And if I do anything with this podcast, if I get one person to listen to Nick and and enjoy him. You already did. You got me. That's right. I never listened to him. The only song I ever listened to before you before this pod was Red Right Hand. Which mm-hmm. is a great one. Which it is, is a fucking great one. Yeah. But I've listened to many since then. <gasps> I'm so thrilled. Listeners, if you've been if you've started listening to Nick since since hearing uh Miss Fake Name's Passion for him, please let us know. Creepyinquiriespod at gmail.com. Please do. That would make Edie's day. I would live and die for it. Well, Kev, what have you been up to? Oh, I certainly didn't have as fulfilling of an uh, a, a, a weekend as you did. I'm so glad that you got to be in the presence. Yeah. Your dark lord. Yeah. Your dark, dark lord. prince, my devilish Your dark, dark prince. <laughs> so I'm so glad you got to experience him. For my experience this past weekend, we went to a nice queer art installation event <gasps> that was going on. Uh, there is a ill-fated return of a local art festival in Baltimore oh, happening yeah, this weekend entitled Artscape. What's wrong with Artscape? It was cursed this year. It's been cursed. It's the first oh. one since covid yeah. And they moved it from this oh. different time of year that it's usually at, it firstly. Is, it is. Which caused a lot of turmoil in the surrounding areas, i.e., around where I work specifically. Uh-huh. Additionally, they had booked Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child as a top headliner performer, which uh-huh. she was like, mm, never mind. And then she, she like dropped backed out, out three oh. weeks ahead of the concert. That is unprofessional. And it's now, um, what is this? Tropical storm Ophelia that has just been like (laughs) all weekend long. You're breaking my heart. You're canceling (laughs) Artscape this weekend. (laughs) So anyway, that got all um, busted (laughs) out. We were only able to go to the indoor event known as Queerscape. And that was fun. We got to see some performances, got to hang out with friends. And that was a good experience. But it's been rainy this past weekend. So, brr. But miss, what about you? Oh, well, this dark princess has been loving this deluge and this weather. Yes, it's perfect, Miss Weather. I am not alone, but I do know I am in the minority. But listen, y'all, you had your fucking summer, okay? I don't know what's wrong with you people, but you had it and you liked it. I'm not about it. Any day the sun's not out is a good day for Miss. Remember a tropical storm Listen, this sounds so bad. Every time I say it, it sounds so bad, but I can't help it. I thrive on a chilly, gloomy day thriving this there person. are people built like that and you're one of yes, them for sure mostly yeah. 
call her garbage because she's only happy when it rains. Yes! Oh, my God. Yes, Yes. Edie. Yes, Edie. Yes, Edie. Yes, that is exactly it. My weekend has been okay. I have done some cleaning. I've done some stitching. I've done some nail painting. Wonderful. I've done some reading. I am reading a really cute YA book that was what if Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter were enemies to lovers. The story is different, but it's very much set at like a magical school and they are roommates and they hate each other. Oh my God, they were roommates. And they were roommates. Yeah. And then like, there's like this like real big, like he's like the most powerful wizard ever, but he's also an orphan. It's just very Harry Potter. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Here's the thing. Good for them. It's not at all. It's not at all the same story. It's it's like the story starts with them in their last year. Like it could be in the universe if they wanted to, but anyway, it's a Mm -hmm. really good story and it's not just like magic. There's vampires and werewolves and everything. So it's really cute and it's exactly what I needed. But yeah, it was a good weekend, nice and relaxing. And um, I also, as it turns out, have a tale or two to tell you today. Oh, two? Please. Yeah. I didn't write anything. We said true crime story, not Uh two crime stories. No, so I did the thing. We just talked about this last week when you really, really love a story, but it turns out to not have that much meat to it. What do you do? I wrote three and a half pages on it. Do I abandon her? No, I do not abandon her. No. I <laughs> We do a surf and turf. <laughs> we do a surf and turf. So... If I may. You may. I'll allow it. All right. Now, we've covered con artists before a few times on the pod. We know that it is short for confidence man or con man. But who was the original OG? Well, I wanted to tell you the story of the original OG con man, but it turns out it's not even half a page long. Oh. (laughs) I was still... In the mood for old-timey cons. But the original, in 1848 Manhattan, William Thompson dressed very well and was very polite and would approach wealthy-looking people on the streets of Manhattan and ask them, have you the confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? So That's so bold. It wow, is. That so is the people would Dress fancy and say, give yeah. me your watch. Don't be poor and ask for a watch and say it in this kind of, I don't know, lyrical, magical kind of speak. And you'll get a watch and you will not see that man again. <laughs> Did he give a reason why he needed that watch until no. tomorrow? Other than just, hey, do you trust me? It's like those people who hang out on the street and try and make TikToks and have yeah. a sign that says like, if you uh, trust me, hug me. And it's like, I'm not going to hug a stranger. I don't trust you and I don't don't. want to hug you. The only strangers I'm hugging are like the free hugs at pride from like mom figures. (laughs) Yeah. Um, hundred percent. But yeah, so that's the entire story of Mr. William Thompson. He got caught (laughs) a year later and went to jail because you can only do it. You can only do it so many times. What do we have for a scoop? Okay. But we're not talking about him because we've said all we can say about him. (laughs) For my first story, we're going to talk about Princess Caribou. Oh, I love that name. No. Love that name. On April 3rd, 1817, a cobbler in Almondsbury, England, about eight miles from Bristol, saw an unusual sight coming towards him from the road. It was a woman who seemed disoriented, wearing a, quote, exotic clothing or Eastern dress speaking an incomprehensible language. And the incomprehensible part is in quotes. (laughs) The woman was in her mid twenties and was wearing a turban on her head and a red and black shawl. Every like drawing of her that I saw, like in passing, she, she did this. She had like her, she was wearing clothing, but she had like her arm in front of her tits and was like, kind of like holding like this with one arm. 
listeners, oh, uh, I everyone has have to like, have a signature pose. That's right. So listeners, I have one tit and an elbow, and then my arm reaches across to the other one and cradles cradles the other one. It's an interesting choice. It's a powerful pose. It's powerful. It's a very powerful pose. Nobody's getting at these nips. So the cobbler realized the woman was making hand movements as she was trying to talk to him and realized that she was asking for food and shelter. He brings her inside, but the cobbler's wife was uneasy with having this young stranger in their home and convinced... Excuse me. Yeah. (laughs) Who did not speak English. No English. Into their home. This young 20-year-old holding her tits. Oh, well, yeah. I don't know how often she was holding her tits, but she was walking. In my head, she's always holding them. She's never letting go. Good. It's going to make the story interesting. (laughs) The cobbler's wife was weirded out by this and told him to take her to the justice of the peace for vagrancy. The clerk, Samuel Worrell, Worrell, that's a hard one, felt bad for her and brought her to his home where he and his wife hoped to learn more about her. And they were mostly unsuccessful. All they really learned was that she was homeless and that she had a counterfeit coin in her pocket. Red flag and red flag. Yeah, that coin's a little... What are we doing? Sus. Um, yes, sus, sus, sis. The, the whole look of Edie, You know, I was hearing this, and I was like, she's, Edie's just going to rip this whole thing apart as a scam. And she can't, like, you just can't just let a story be fun. You're going to be skeptic <laughs> about it. I mean, <laughs> would I let her into my house? Probably. I mean. Yeah, I mean, it depends if probably. she was doing that artistic. Yeah, like. Thing. Maybe. Instead of prison, though, Worrell's wife, Elizabeth, arranged for the strange woman to stay at the local inn called The Bowl. In her room at the inn, there was a drawing of a pineapple. And when she saw it, the strange woman screamed, Nanas, which is the Indonesian word for pineapple. Oh. So the townspeople believed she was Indonesian, or at least from Asia and spoke Indonesian. Eventually, Elizabeth, the clerk's wife, got her away and she was brought back to their home. Unfortunately for this woman, he was not, the clerk, Mr. Worrell, was not sold and she was sent to Bristol to be tried for vagrancy. And all they had really figured out in this time was that her name was caribou. It's not spelled like the animal. It's not spelled like the animal. It's spelled like the name Kara and boo. So like, that's my boo Kara. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just took a minute here to just remind people that there are laws against being poor and homeless. And those are vagrancy, loitering, all that kind of stuff. It's basically just crimes because you were poor. Being publicly and visibly poor is poor bad. is Don't illegal. In Bristol, she's sent to St. Peter's Hospital at first to be examined, where she, quote, caused so many problems for the staff that the Worrells agreed to place her under their care again. Yeah, she's fucking shit up so she can yeah, go she and she wants to go back be with a nicer with that. Yeah. yeah, like she, I don't know how she feels about the clerk himself, but I'm pretty sure she is not, is a big fan of his wife. By now, the news of a strange foreign woman spread and looky loos from far and wide stopped by for a look at the strange woman named Caribou. And you know, this is this is the time of like fucking human zoos. So this is bad. It's, it is. She was born in 1817. Or wait, I'm sorry. This takes place in 1817. So maybe just a little bit before, before human the human zoos. zoos. But the ideas are percolating. Yup. Anything yep. human zoos future subjects. Uh huh. They're so bad and lasted for so long. So looky loos are coming to get a to get a peek at her. And after about 10 days of just after about 10 days of just receiving visitors, a Portuguese sailor, Manuel Enyeso, stops by, and it turns out he knows Indonesian. So interesting. Caribou explains her story and Manuel translates. She was Princess Caribou of Havasu, an island nation in the Indian Ocean. 
She had been kidnapped from her home by pirates and held captive on their ship. And she escaped by jumping overboard in the Bristol Channel and swam ashore, which is how she ended up disheveled walking down the road in Almondsbury. Checks out, 100%. Yep. A Dr. Wilkinson later identified and confirmed the language as Indonesian by using Edmund Fry's Pantographia, which is a book of all the known alphabets at the time and their sounds with each information. He also, quote, stated that the marks on the back of her head were the work of Oriental surgeons. Yeah, okay. I don't even sure. know what you know, Just say uh, it. Just say it. This is giving me fucking Tiffany from Tiffany's looking at those, like, bogus-ass yeah. shitty gems and being like, they're so <laughs> valuable. I just know it. From then on, the townspeople treated her like royalty. Of course. Of course. From atlasobscura.com, quote, in turn, she put on quite a show. She used a bow and arrow, carried a gong on her back, and wore flowers and feathers in her hair. She gave fencing demonstrations using a blade stained at the tip with vegetable poison. She even, quite scandalously, swam naked in a lake. It better night, work. Only an huh? Indonesian princess. Only. Or only in a princess of a small country on the indian ocean there exactly is. <laughs> she is not indonesian exactly she is habasudui each night before she went to sleep she would pray to her god whom she called Allah tala often from top of a tree so she'd climb a tree this is all 100 like percent checking out she entertained art audiences of foreigners linguists painters physiognomists craniologist and vagabonds craniologists here we go uh -huh. should not be phrenologist let's let's get in there with our phrenology fingers look and really at massage that it skull. the princess only ate vegetables and only drank tea and she acquired eclectic clothing to fit with her bohemian vagabond vibe Mr. This is Warhol. such a great con because it plays on, like, everybody involved has to be, like, a specific kind of racist. Um, I mean, it's 1817. Like, yeah. like you have to just be, so like, far beyond. <laughs> delighted by perceived cultural difference and, like, the yeah. weirder the better. Praying at the top of a tree. Look how different we all are. Swimming nude. Vegetables nude. Oh, add as many vowels to that as you need to really get that across. Nude. Mr. Warhol was now on board. Yeah, he saw her swimming nude. Yeah. He's into it. He encouraged Princess Caribou to write down her story and her native language and then sent the papers to Oxford to the language department to be examined. Oh, and Manuel, meanwhile, became the official translator of Princess Caribou while she became the sensation of Southwest England, garnering the attention of the press. Which, girl, you're getting too far into it. No. Uh huh. Gotta know uh -huh. when to hold them. Hold them. Know when to hold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to go. run. You never can. Okay, are we done? So in June 1817, Mrs. Neal was reading a story in the newspaper about this strange, exotic princess caribou. The only problem was that Mrs. Neal was a landlady and princess caribou looked suspiciously similar to her former tenant, Mary Baker, no or way. Mary Wilcox. It's no printed way. both. Pure coincidence, milady. Pure coincidence. No, because... <laughs> Princess Caribou is from Havasu on the Indian Ocean. And she's a princess. And she's a princess. Get your uh, facts straight. Mm -hmm. Sounds like this landlady's jealous. Uh, yeah. Dumb landlady. Stupid bitch. Mary Wilcox Baker had rented a room from Mrs. Neal. First name lost to history forever because she was only referred to as Mrs. Neal. <laughs> Hold Sorry. On. I need to take a time out for a moment. I mean, obviously, it sounds like her name really is what Mary. It's Mary Baker or Mary Wilcox. So I Mary called Wilcox her Mary Baker. Wilcox Baker. 
So yeah. like both Mary Wilcox Baker and mm-hmm. Princess Caribou are amazing drag names in their own. Oh, respect. they are very true. Yeah, God. no, I didn't even think about the Wilcox part. I really I'm should have. I mean, think Princess Caribou is gonna ha- is gonna be a it's problematic, be problematic act. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be a tough sell in the year of our Lord twenty twenty three. Or her name is Princess, like Michael Jackson oh, named her his son, or like the singer Prince. You know, but yeah. So Mrs. Neal never had a first name. Didn't matter. Mary Baker Wilcox or Mary Wilcox Baker had rented a room from Mrs. Neal and she was known around the house to wear a black turban and to speak to lodgers in a made up language. Yikes. Yes. Yeah. This is the deal. (laughs) Manuel showed up (laughs) at a very convenient time. How? Very conveniently knowing. Manuel is an innocent Portuguese sailor. Okay? And I don't know what you mean by this attack. I'm smelling bullshit. I'm smelling <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> How dare you? Around the same time that Mrs. Neal thinks she knows who Princess Caribou is, academics at Oxford had gotten back to Mr. Worrell about the writings he sent from Princess Caribou, and they said it was, quote, humbug language. Oh my gosh. Worrell's like waiting by the door Uh for the mail Uh from Oxford. He's so fucking excited. Uh I've got this real life princess. She's told her story. We're going to hear about it. I'm going to get a cut of it. Uh huh. (laughs) And an independent doctor had examined her and noticed those odd oriental scars on the back of her head looked identical to a scar that would be caused by a wet cupping procedure. Quote, a procedure intended to relieve pressure on an overheated brain in which the back of the head was shaved, the skin was scarred with parallel blades, and hot glasses applied to catch blood. This practice was common in poor houses like the one Mary Wilcox Baker grew up in as a child. Oh, jeez. Yikes. The gig was up. When Mrs. Neal went to Bristol to see Princess Caribou, she dropped the act real quick and was suddenly (laughs) fluent in English. Mrs. Neal was right. This was Mary Wilcox Baker. From allthingsinteresting.com, quote, an Exeter newspaper published a tale of Princess Caribou, quote, the wonderful female who has outwitted the doctor, puzzled the learned, and astonished the multitude turns out to be a vile imposter, a vagrant wanderer, and the daughter of a poor cottager. Drag her. She's not a princess. She's poor and gross. She's a poor. She's poor. When asked why she she started this whole ruse, Mary said that she thought it would make her more interesting. And she she was right. It did. She was right. She did become way more interesting. Yeah, people flipped shit for Princess Caribou. That's right. Surprisingly, though, the people she scammed really didn't seem to care that much. I think Worrell, the clerk, I think he cared the most, but he didn't really care that much. (laughs) After this, Mary had mentioned going to America. So Elizabeth Worrell bought her passage to Philadelphia with a chaperone. (laughs) Oh, okay. So they're out. They're out some money. After being scammed, I may not have been feeling quite so generous, but who am I? Right. Uh, Wait, this is Mary. after the scam? After. Oh my after god. The scams revealed. Mary's a genius. If she got she's, the, if she's she got doing something. She did Philly, the whole thing, didn't get in any kind of trouble, after. gets free passage with a chaperone. She stays there for 7 years before she returns to London and immediately put together a limited time show where she charged visitors a shilling to see Princess Caribou of Havasu in person. Brilliant. Wow. Mary then retired the princess game for good, married Robert Baker, and the two set up shop importing leeches and selling them to medical facilities. Hey, there's good money in leeches. That's right. That's disgusting. It's horrible. But it was 1817, so there really was good money in leeches. It was prime leech time. But yeah, that is my first tale. The uh, I love tale old timey scammer Princess Caribou. Princess Caribou. I, I love what well, please welcome to the stage, legendary House of Caribou. <laughs> <laughs> the 
house of caribou. The house of caribou is amazing. I have such a soft spot in my heart for uh, the con artists who pretend to be royalty. I goddamn live for it. I live for it. Remember yes. her? Gignac. Yes, heard of her? How could we forget that Bob? That Honestly. Anthony Gignac Bob. <laughs> oh, that hair. Oh, the hair. The absolute, oh, the absolute wonder. The beauty. Tina Belcher Bob that Anthony Ugh. Gignac was sporting. God, it was Glorious. so bad. So, are we ready? Story number two. Yes. Oh my ready. God, Just ready. as old timey. Even more so. Elizabeth Caning was born on September 17th, 1734, and at the time of the incident, she was working as a maidservant to a neighbor. Her father had recently died, leaving the family destitute, and 15-year-old Elizabeth and her mother struggled to keep the family of six fed in their two rooms that they were managed managed to get. Six people, two rooms. Two whole Yikes. rooms for all activities. Yikes. On January 1st, 1753, Elizabeth left her home in Alderman Barry and took a walk to visit her aunt and uncle in Salt Petrobank. This is all in London. These names are very interesting and historic. So that's very Alderman Barry. She goes to Salt Peter Bank to visit for the new year, which, and I was reading an old newspaper and it was, it said NO afterwards, which means it was the new dating method, which meant that January 1st had been decided as New Year's not long before this, as the first day of the year in 17, and this is 1753, before it was in March. What? What? March 25th what? was like a Ascension Day on the what was the former calendar? The we have the the Julian calendar. Yeah, what so the all fuck? the in like the 15 like 1558 the pope the George the Pope George whatever. He decided These goddamn he up, popes, miss. These fucking popes. Or no, Gregory or whatever. Popes. He came up whatever. with whatever. Some fuck Gregorian calendar. And each country or each society seemed to have their own New Year's. So they set about having like the Roman calendar and like the, I they would see. have, they would okay, have, got it. And it's my cult's they, fault that we have January 1st. It is. It is. It's both of you. And the UK had only recently adapted to this new New Year. So they wrote new, the new dating or whatever it meant. But anyway, I thought that was New Order. New Order, like Joy Division became New Order. Maybe. Could be. We could pretend. Let's pretend. It's New Year's Day. She she visited her aunt and uncle. On her way back to her mother's home, she stopped by two brutish men. And the men robbed her of a guinea and three shillings. They took her gown, her apron, and her hat. So no, not the, hat. Under things. not the hat. I know. No, she's she practically new. And the last thing, the last thing she remembered was seeing one of the men stuff her hat in his big cloak. <laughs> it's just it's so hard. I mean, I get it. This is a crime, but like, come on. Hats <laughs> were such a big deal for such a long time, miss. They really were. They really, really, you really, couldn't fucking really not have a hat were. on. There were laws against hats and four hats and witch hats and when you could wear hats and full hat etiquette. They then tied a handkerchief in her mouth and bound her hands behind her back, and then they bonked her good on the back of the head, which caused her to have a seizure and then pass out. Ooh. She had a known seizure disorder, so. When Liz, which is what I'm calling her, didn't show up to work the next morning, her employer, Edward Lyon, went to look for her. Her mother didn't realize she hadn't returned. And when Lyon went to see the aunt and uncle, they told him that they left her at 930 the night before near Aldgate Church in Houndsditch and hadn't seen her since. So in in 1753, the pamphlets described Liz as, quote, Fresh colored, pitted with ye smallpox, high forehead, light eyebrows, about five foot high, well set, had on a purple masquerade stuff gown, a black stuff petticoat, a white chip hat bound with green, and an 
apron and handkerchief, blue stockings, and leather shoes. Never that describe so, me like that, newspaper. That is Never. so much clothes. It's just it's like all a clothes, of and then clothing. she's like, she's got the pox. She's short. She's got pox. She's got eyebrows. She's got a forehead for miles. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh huh. After a few weeks, dozens of pamphlets and news articles had been written concerning Elizabeth's strange disappearance, and rewards were even being offered, but no one came forward. No one had any idea what happened to Elizabeth until January 29th, 1753, nearly a month later. When she showed up, she reappeared at her mother's house at 10 p.m. on January 29th. She was in, quote, an emaciated and deplorable condition. Her face and hands were black with dirt. She wore a shift petticoat and bedgown, and a blood-soaked rag was around her head. Oh. Ow. Yeah. She told her mother that she was attacked by two men near the notorious Bedlam Hospital. She, she was, after she was bound and hit in the head, quote, she awoke by a large road where was water with two men that robbed me, end quote. They took her to the home of a madam who asked Elizabeth if Elizabeth would, quote, go their way, end quote, a.k.a. be a sex worker, and Elizabeth refused. The madam then cut off her stays, which are her underclothing. This is oh. before corsets, but it kind of had the same purpose. Yeah, like uh-huh. a similar, similar deal. It's a similar, like, structured yeah. undergarment. Gather up your torso with yeah. stays. No bending. Um, And forced her into an upstairs hayloft where she was kept naked and nearly starving for a month. I think it's really interesting that Elizabeth was given a choice to be trafficked sexually and she declined and then they honored her choice. Yeah, like, interesting. I mean, big if true. Big if true. She was kept in a hayloft area and she was occasionally visited by a Mrs. Willis or Wells. She could not remember. Hmm. The room had a window that was boarded over and eventually Liz was able to pull the boards far enough away that she was able to escape. And because she was kept naked, she had to throw together some clothing that she found in an unused fireplace in the room that she was kept. There Hmm. were just clothes in there. She left through the window and walked the five miles back to her mother's house. Once news spread that Elizabeth was found alive, neighbors and friends started questioning her and believed they knew who the perpetrators were. Mother Susanna Wells ran a brothel on Hertford Road in Enfield, Wash, and it sounded right up her alley. When authorities arrived, they arrested Mother Wells and Mary Squires, who Elizabeth ID'd as the woman who cut off her stays. So she's saying she shows up. They say, do you want to be a sex worker? She says no. And then she orders Mary Squires to cut off her stays. Liz also ID'd the hayloft where they kept her, though she noted there was much more hay present than when she was kept there. She ID'd a woman named Virtue Hall as being present when Mary Squires cut off her stays. Okay, uh, Virtue, also, Virtue Hall is a great name. It's such a good name. Agreed. It's all I could think of. Like the whole, <laughs> I was just like, this is such a good name. Uh, <laughs> Virtue denied all knowledge of the interaction and claimed she had no idea Elizabeth Caning was ever in the house. At the time, assault was not a criminal offense, but civil. So Elizabeth had to bring suit against her kidnappers for those charges, including the kidnapping charges. Mm. But that costs a lot of money, and she has the burden of proof to deal with in those cases, money she did not have. So the most serious charge that they could find was theft of Elizabeth's stays because they were worth 10 shillings thus making it a felony hanging offense. Whoa. Oh my gosh. <laughs> not the kidnapping, Jesus not the Christ. assault, not the starvation. Please remember people, it is so important to remember that criminal laws are not there to protect 
people. No. They never they never were designed to. And historically speaking, the only reason we have these criminal laws is to protect your property, not people. So she was supposedly beaten, kidnapped, and kept in a hayloft and surviving on bits of old bread and and like soiled water and the only crime that was committed was cutting her underclothes and you hang for it and That's you the best. hang That's the fucking for best. it oh jesus we're great wow. we're great so We've thus, always the been only great. crime committed was theft of property so remember our legal our criminal legal systems and the enforcers of that system are never there for people they're always there for your property and liability of a government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just throwing it out there. Oh, my God. That's... So, that's... whatever. So, they go to trial on the theft, theft charges. Mary Wells... I'm sorry. Mother Wells and Mary Squires. Um, despite tons of conflicting testimony and lack of evidence besides Liz's own testimony, Mother Wells and Mary Squires are both convicted. Oh yeah, of course they are. Of course. Along with many others, Lord Mayor of London, Sir Crisp Gascoigne. His name what? is Crisp, and I will only refer to him as Sir Crisp. Hey Crisp. Not yeah, not Crispin. Not Crisp Crisp hey, Shin. Just just Crisp. Christopher. Um, Christopher. So Christopher decides he's going to open. He doesn't believe this story. It doesn't make sense to him. And he is not alone. There is very distinct pro-Elizabeth, anti-Elizabeth factions Mm -hmm. forming. Mm -hmm. He opens his own inquiry and he, he learns that Mother Wells may not have operated a brothel after all. Quote, Wells's house had served a variety of functions, including that of a carpenter shop, a butcher, and an alehouse. The old woman kept animals in the house and occasionally had lodgers. She had twice been widowed. Her first husband was a carpenter, and her second had been hanged for theft. There was no proof it was or it was currently or ever was a brothel. Huh. Huh. It also turned out that the hayloft was different than Liz described, but not just because it had more hay. When authorities arrived at Wells's home, quote, the warrant officer who searched the loft was puzzled when he discovered that it did not resemble the room described by Kaning at all, nor could he find evidence of her having jumped out the window. Right. Was there even like a, was it a fireplace or something in there? Nothing was where she said it was. So there right. was a fireplace. There was a window that was boarded but it wasn't set up the way liz said it was it was it was in a different and there wasn't any hey it's very so her so not to say it didn't happen she's just mem she's just remembering incorrectly it sounds like there was also the issue of virtue hall Originally, she had stated she was completely unaware of Elizabeth Koenig's presence, but after repeated questioning from magistrate and author Henry Fielding, her story was contradicted and Fielding threatened her with imprisonment. Yeah, you're going to say fucking whatever. Mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. the pro-Liz side. So there's Fielding and then there's Sir Crisp on the anti side. Got it. Fielding's like, well, I, I absolutely brutalized this woman until she told me exactly what I wanted to hear. So Yeah, it was like three or four times before she eventually changed her story. Great. Perfect. Fuck. On February 14th, 1753, just hitting all the holidays. Valentine's Vir- Day. Yeah. Virtue Hall confessed that Mary Squires' son, John Squires, and another unknown man brought Liz to the Wells home in the early morning hours of January 2nd. She said Wells then assaulted Liz and Mary Squires cut off her stays while she watched on. Sir Crisp thought it was strange that more than three people had now confessed to stories matching Liz's exact explanation nearly perfectly. Yeah. Moreover, 15 prominent residents of Abbotsbury, including church wardens, overseers of the poor, a schoolmaster, and a tithing man, swore that the Squires family were in Dorset in January and that their witnesses were trustworthy men. A further six Abbotsbury men walked 20 miles to sign an affidavit corroborating 
that story. Wow. And what but do you were think? were they questioned under duress? I didn't think I doubt so. it. And what do you think these dueling opinions of Fielding and Crisp caused? You guessed it. It's a pamphlet war, baby. Oh, we're going yes. pam- We're throwing dirt. We're yes. selling pamphlets. We it ain't the 1700s a- without a goddamn pamphlet war, baby. Pamphlet war. All right. I mean, it was mainly just tossing ins- insults and accusations with Fielding. That's saying, a classic I know, element of a pamphlet for. war. That's what they're for. And that Fielding said that the hill Gascon Crisp was dying on was, quote, this hill was only a paltry dung hill and had long before been leveled with the dirt. This yes. Bullshit. Fuck yes. Yes. Drag her. <laughs> Drag her. Then Sir Crisp still not giving up on March 9th. He interviewed Mother Wells in prison, and she told him the same story she had from the beginning. She had never met Elizabeth. She had never had her in her home, and she certainly didn't harm her. He conducted various other interviews on March 11th and 12th, and then eventually he ordered the arrest of Elizabeth Caning for perjury on March 13th, 1753. Do you hang for perjury, too? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Jeez, fuck. It was cool. She it. doesn't. She, she doesn't. But they did say it was a hanging offense. Great. Wow. Elizabeth's trial for perjury was held in May, and it lasted seven days, which was a very long time for a trial in this time. That's because so in this long. time, most matters were simply reconciled through the parties and the magistrate. Unless it was like murder, like most people, there weren't many trials happening. And even then, like, what do you, you don't have like expert testimony. Like it's you've got so little, it's all testimony, right? I mean, ours. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's what evidence is. I mean, unless you find a bloody knife at a murder scene, you can use that as evidence. Sure. But without that, you know, um, so it lasted seven days. She was convicted of willful and corrupt perjury and sentenced to one month's imprisonment and seven years transportation in America. What do we know? Transportation means indentured servitude. Ooh. That's why we have America and Australia. Penal That's colonies right. is what they were first, That's folks. Right. So she's sent to be an indentured servant. She goes to Connecticut. Her supporters, though, had arranged for her to stay in the home of Methodist Reverend Alicia Williams, where she was welcomed as a family member. So she was sentenced to transportation, but she didn't really fulfill that that part of her sentence. Right. She's just kind of chill. I don't mind. She just, yeah. That's fine. She just lived there. She lived out the rest of her life in America where she had married, she married and had four children, but she died suddenly in 1773 at the age of 39. And that is the pre the precursor to the Sherry Papini case. If you remember from not that long ago, old timey, Sherry, old timey, Sherry Papini. And yeah, I love it. I love an old timey trip to yeah. trip down memory lane. Yeah, because you could get away with so trip. much more back then. You could. Oh, like God. neither of these, like the scammer, she got nothing. She essentially got she, she I mean, she had some second. pre-trial incarceration for like three weeks, but otherwise there was no punishment for Elizabeth either. I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of no harm, no foul, except yeah, no for the is. pretrial incarcerations of... There is um, pretrial incarceration. Wells there was a lot of and, money. And yeah. Mary, but... Yeah, so th- that is the consequence. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, they, and they were thinking that they were going to die, and that's yeah, not good. exactly. And they yeah. were there until Elizabeth's um, conviction, so probably hmm. two months. So, well, I mean, I guess thank you, Lord Crisp, for... Yeah, right? Dotting your eyes and crossing Thanks, your T's, bud. Crisp Tuffer. Yes. Yeah, thank you, miss. Thank you, miss. And I'm keeping the fun me? zone train going. <laughs> choo choo. With my spoof today. <laughs> but uh, before I get into it, a quick reminder to our listeners to please click that follow and or subscribe button. We're mostly on Instagram at Creepy Inquiries Pod. That's right. 
Indeed, a mysterious creature I bring forth today. Ooh, yay! We encrypted corner? Oh, is it an alien? Yeah. Is it a ghoul? Oh. Is it an animal? Oh. Oh. Is it an animal? Is it an, an animal? animal? Well, come with me, if you will, back to 1977. <laughs> oh, my God. You do it so well, Cass. Your Moira perfect. is excellent. It's so, it's such a good Moira. Oh, God. I Well, I appreciate it. It thank is. You. <laughs> so we're going to go to uh, 1977 to the small but wealthy town of Dover, Massachusetts, as we try to figure out just what the hell was the Dover Demon. Okay. Have hey. you all heard of the Dover, Dover Demon? Ain't no. never heard of that Dover I've Demon. I've never heard of the Dover Wonderful. Demon. Wonderful. Yes. yes. Well, this one's a relatively short story, too. The okay. town at the time had only about 4,500 residents. The nights of Thursday, April 21st, and Friday, April 22nd, 1977, brought three separate fantastical sightings by six individuals, all mm-hmm. separate unconnected eyewitnesses described what they saw and provided uncannily similar sketches. Okay. The sightings created a national uproar and a brief fascination with Dover. So this bizarre tale begins around 1030 on Thursday, April 21st. Three friends, Bill, Mike, and Andy, they're all 17 years of age. They were driving around uh, their town, and Bill, who was driving, spotted something, some kind of shadowy figure crouching along a low wall made out of mm. loose stones along the road. I don't like this. Creepy. I don't like those loose stones near the road either. Uh-uh. He said it was backlit at first, so he couldn't really make out anything except for its silhouette. But that was until the headlights caught it square on. Okay. The figure slowly turns its head and stares into the lights. Its large, round, glassy, lidless eyes were shining, quote, like two orange marbles. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Orange marbles. Orange marbles. The being's watermelon-shaped head, well, technically oh, peanut-shaped rude. head, as far as Ruder. I was. Ruder. Like Arnold? <laughs> like, hey, Arnold? No, no, that's a football. It's a peanut football-shaped shaped head, miss. So he has, like, the head right here, the face, and then uh, the cranium oh, is long. another big oh. on top. Oh, so it's like blob Oh, because a peanut of in the blob. shell. An yeah. in-shell peanut. Got like it. Like a Mr. Okay. Peanut. Yes, and, and yes, it's exactly. Mr. So. Peanut. Um, the, its large, large head rested atop a pencil-like neck, which they said its head was the size of the rest of its body in relation. Okay. Picturing a weird ant head. Yeah. <laughs> Bill said that the creature was thin, had lanky arms and legs, and it was covered in like a peach shark-like skin. And it had disproportionately large hands and feet for its body shape. I'm I out. This. No, and it stood this. about three and a half like to four feet tall. I have a picture for it, just so you guys can no. have a. Okay. No. Able... no. 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 Yeah. No. Yeah, no. Baby. No. I hate yeah, it. Baby. I don't like that. No, it's bad. <gasps> you know what it looks like? It looks like salad fingers. Do you remember that? It was Maybe. like an old flash video. It was just called Salad Fingers. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I know Elder exactly what you're talking about now. If you God, Google yes. it, you will know what it is. Hell yeah. Bill only got a few seconds of a peek as he drove by it. Bill was so stunned, he didn't even check with his two other friends to see if they saw the same thing. He was just in a daze in a way where he just dropped them off at their house and as soon as he got back to his house, he, he found his parents in the living room and told them immediately what he saw. He sketches out what he thinks he sees. And it's not unlike that picture I just showed y'all. Oh, I'm okay. looking at it. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Bill. He has really good hey, form, Hold it up right? to the camera, Edie. Oh, I can't see. It's too bright. Uh, oh, there we go. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. nearly identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's way better than that drawing of the um, reptilian that that kid did on yes. uh, reptoids.com. God, <laughs> that yes. was garbage. Or okay. the leprechaun in Atlanta. Oh my God, the leprechaun. <laughs> um, Bill's version, by the way, comes from his interview with a cryptozoologist named Lauren Coleman. Lauren spelled L-O-R-E-N. At first I thought it was Lauren, but it's not. Yeah, it's Lauren. Man Lauren. Man Lauren. And he found out about the strange sightings. And days later, he traveled. I forget where he lived at the time, but he traveled um, to Dover and interviewed all of these kids that, that said they saw something. Mr. Coleman interviews Bill. We learn from a 2007 article, which is the 30th anniversary of the sightings okay. in the Boston Globe. He claims that he had no idea, actually, that the event was turning 30 when when a reporter approached him about it. He was like, honestly, I forgot all about it until someone brings it up. But uh, It's not just Dover Demon. It's Dover Demon 30. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my God, I love that. Dover Demon 30. <laughs> but he nonetheless stands by what he saw and what he drew down. And he was quoted in 2007 saying, You get that moment where your eyes meet. And I remember that happening and it freaked me out. And so, yeah. yeah. But I think y'all saw uh, Bill's sketch on your own site. Y'all looked it up, which is cool. Yeah, And that is the most famous drawing of the creature, which all renderings since really have been kind of based off of. I mean, uh, in sure. the Bill captured since. the pose. It's He did. Captured really the fingers. Did. Yep. The fingers. The thingies the on peanut. the stone. The like. Yeah. The, the little huh? like hands. The like look. Yeah. Like you mm-hmm. caught me. The who me? <laughs> huh? Like kind of no. over the shoulder coquettish look. Me? Uh-huh. Not like a Bigfoot, like oh, he was oh, posing. No, not like a sh- not like a surprise, like a who, huh? like a oh what you? Oh, I didn't know you were coming. Camera, I didn't even see you there. <laughs> oh, you. The next person who reported a sighting that night was another teenager, a fifteen-year-old John Baxter. I'm already starting to think, okay, already nobody's seen them except teenagers, so you know, red flag. You never know. Whatever. But my yeah, story today sometimes. is not to say whether or not it was real. I am just reporting what was reported. All right. That's right. That is right. So Johnny, Johnny Baxter, Johnny claims that he left his girlfriend's house around midnight and he started walking the mile or so back to his house. Approaching his home's street, he observes someone approaching him down the block because the figure so is very okay. short. Baxter assumes that it was one of his neighbors who I would assume was around that same height. So he calls out to that person, but he gets no response. Baxter and the figure continue to approach each other until finally the creature stops. Baxter then halts as well, and he asks, who is that? Because he still can't really see what's going on. And as he's trying to get a better look, Johnny takes one step forward and then the figure scurries off and runs into the woods. I hate that. <laughs> As the figure right runs, here. Baxter hears its footsteps on all the dried leaves as it's entering the wooded area. And so he decides to follow the figure, which red flag. All right, you're 15 years oh, old. Yeah, it is like it. midnight. I mean, Come on now. It's not for you. It's not for no. you. <laughs> Mom, Dad, I didn't miss curfew because I was making out with my girlfriend. I missed no. curfew because I was chasing after the Dover Demon. God, you have to believe you me. I worked. I, I sketched this the sketch out. Look, <laughs> so no, this I is what he looks like. Yeah, which is what he does because he finds it again inside the wooded area, and he gets a sort of better look. But he's still about like thirty feet away. But he's still close enough where he's able to uh, make out that the feet. Is like they're gripping the boulder, which is very uncannily similar to the other sketch that we saw earlier, too. So who knows? Okay. Did he these, says, did these teens know each other? They did not. Interesting. They did not. 
So Johnny goes on to describe how its eyes are two, like as two lighter spots in the middle of a head that doesn't have any other kind of features except for their eyes. No protruded nose, things like that. It's very no, flat. Nothing. It's just a peanut head and eyeballs, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and realizing he's never seen Pink a creature like this before. skin. Ugh, yeah. He backs away carefully, his heart pounding, and then he, quote, walked very fast down the rest of the way back to his home. I didn't run. Don't write down that I ran. I walked just really fast. It was a power walk. I power walked. It's a difference. They have competitions for it. Yes. Yes, it's real. Yes. Power walk. Yes. <laughs> they have competitions. It is real. You have to keep a, a foot. One foot always has to be on the ground for it to be a power walk. <laughs> the third and final sighting of the Dover demon from this episode of 77 came the following night on Friday. This time, though, okay. the eyewitness was a female. Her name was Abby Bramham. She was 15 as well. She was being driven home by a feller named Will, who was 18 years old, which they were dating. Ugh. But okay. I mean, neither here nor there for now. I don't love it. I don't love it. Uh-huh. I don't. So they were um, driving in Will's vehicle when lo and behold, the same mysterious thing pops up out of the woods on the side of the road. Abby described a strange creature with large peanut shell shaped head and long spindly limbs. And she even elaborated further than the other two sightings the evening before by describing how it was lacking all of its facial features except for its eyes, which she says, and she claims on a stack of Bibles, that they were glowing bright green instead of bright orange. So there is a deviation there. It's got like different colors like lightsabers, you know? You're right. You got to think about it that way. Animals and people have just depends on what kind of kyber crystals in there, you know? Yes. You have to think open. Keep your mind open, people. Keep her open, hon. (laughs) Will, the driver, caught only a fleeting glimpse, so he couldn't say anything else except he probably saw a large head and it looked like some kind of tan body crouched in the road. So he wasn't good for nothing. But neither Abby nor Will provided a sketch, or at least one that I could not locate. But as far as I know, the uh, only sketches that we got from those sightings were the two from the previous evening. Cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman was the person to coin the term Dover Demon. He was adamant that the kids he interviewed didn't know each other. They didn't know that the others had made their own witness statements, nor did any of them have a reason to lie about it? So why would they go through all of this? Yeah. Fair. Fair arguments to make. Yeah. Never proven, so we never know. Of course, the Dover Demon had its own episode of Unsolved Mysteries. You are not legit. Yes. Back in the 90s, yes. Oh, so it's even more legit. Oh, gee, yes. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Uh, Call me when you've been on Beyond Belief, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Call me when Dean Kane arrives, all right? Oh, God, yeah, Dean Kane took over. But it, Jonathan Frakes is the only of Beyond Belief host that I will accept. Me too. Me too. Nerd alert. Fuck Dean Kane. Fuck him hard. Actually, no, do not fuck him. He don't needs to I was going to say, Kevin, don't do that. No. I it. But of all of his research on the creature over the decades, Lauren Coleman can't even state with certainty what the Dover Demon actually is. All he is is just happy that to just trumpet the events of that evening and to tell people about his research and his reasonings behind why he believes that those events occurred. Eh. Something okay. to note, the town of Dover never embraced their local legend like a lot of other towns that we've heard about on this podcast. You know, they they didn't they don't have, as far as I know, a Dover Demon Festival or statues, things like that anywhere. They should. They're too, like, bougie They have it. an Albert They're too, too bougie, bougie for it now. I don't know how they were in the 70s, but now they are too bougie. Yes. That's stupid. Lame. Uh-huh. Lame. But uh, if you're ever in the Boston suburbs, then you might come across one of these nights, the Dover Demon. And if you do... 
please make a sketch. And that is the Dover Dean. I love that. It was it was cryptid meets aliens meets cryptalians. It's I loved it. (laughs) Cryptalians. And now rapist. I love it. It's the story of teens seeing stuff and flipping shit. That's right. Again, yep, they're all teens. So those are red flags there. You know, they claim what they claim. Untrustworthy. Don't know. They're just kids. But anyway. They're just kids. kids. They're just babies. (laughs) Oh, that was delicious. I loved these stories. Today really was kind of a, what do we call it? Fun zone? Oh, yeah. It's a fun zone day today. We we were were in the the fun fun zone. zone. We had a fun zone grab bag. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it it too. I'm sure I'll fuck it up next week with some super bummery. Oh, no, I'm off next week. I won't. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yay. Nice. We're safe for another week. Oh, let me check, though, because I have, I think, the true crime next week. And You do. Oh, we'll be in the fun zone. We'll have fun with it. Oh, look at Kev planning ahead. Oh. Yeah. Knowing what he's yeah. doing this I week. I know. It's so, I'm so impressed every fucking time. Jealous. <laughs> I finished yes. my... I finished my the second story that I was doing at like mm-hmm. I don't know nine o'clock this morning, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm be so disappointed." <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, if you like today's trip to the fun zone, feel free to let us know. You can comment on our Instagram at Creepy Inquiries Pod. You could shoot us an email at Creepy Inquiries Pod at Gmail If you would like to know our sources, go to creepyinquiriespod.com. And then if you've got a minute, if you could be so kind to give us a cute little rate and review over at Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening to us on, we really, really appreciate it. And it really helps us out. Mm -hmm. Five stars or I will replace all images of your favorite pet or child in every family photo album with the original sketch of the dover demon <laughs> oh that's so scary i don't want that actually that's on the fence I'm, I'm on the fence of whether or not that'd be cool or not for me but but to the normal listener just the five stars will do you know just the five just stars the five will stars. do please please and thank listener you. thank you so much for joining us on this episode 93 the clint eastwood aged episode talk to an empty chair like it was Obama. Do you remember earlier when Edie promised us that they kept the best for last? Okay, it was it Eastward or George Soros? Who do you want? <laughs> You're right, everything in context. Yeah. And until next time, we do-